The following sermon, entitled The Holy Gospel, was preached on the morning of August 28, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Galatians. We will read Galatians chapter 3, and we do so in connection with the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 6. Galatians chapter 3, we read this not long ago in connection with a different Lord's Day, but there is Plenty here, and we will focus on other parts of this passage this time. Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, Or by the hearing of faith, are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth it he by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the Gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. In this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was four hundred and which was four hundred and thirty years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom 
the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. For if there had been given a law, which, for if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 6. Lord's Day 6. We will read the whole Lord's Day. The focus this evening, this morning, will be on question and answers 18 and 19 as we really treated 16 and 17 last time. But let's reread those. Why must He be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sin should other should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he in one person be also very God, that he might by the power of his Godhead sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life? Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Whence knowest thou this? From the Holy Gospel, which God hath Himself revealed in paradise and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly has fulfilled it by His only begotten Son. Embedded into the flow of the Heidelberg Catechism is what we call in Reformed theology a law-gospel distinction. And that comes out when we compare question and answer 19 to question and answer 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 19 asks, Whence knowest thou this? And the this there is referring back to the previous answer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that He's been made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So when question 19 asks, Whence knowest thou this? It's asking, Whence knowest thou Salvation in Jesus Christ. And the answer is from or out of the holy 
Gospel. And now, the Catechism is using almost identical wording here that it used back in question 3. Because question 3 asked, Whence knowest thou thy misery? And there the answer was, out of or from the law of God. So that when we put these two question and answers side by side, we see that the Catechism is very clearly making a distinction between the law on the one hand and the Gospel on the other. So that what we call in Reformed theology a law-gospel distinction is a part of our confessions. And not just the Heidelberg Catechism. This is a part of the Canons of Dort. For example, in the Canons of Dort, heads 3 and 4, we see this same contrast between Articles 5 and 6. This is page 67 in the back of the Psalter I have in my hand. In Article 5 we read, in the same light are we to, under, are we to consider the law of the Decalogue delivered by God to His peculiar people, the Jews, by the hands of Moses. For though it discovers the greatness of sin and more and more convinces man thereof, yet as it neither points out a remedy nor imparts strength to extricate himself, him from misery, and thus being weak through the flesh leaves the transgressor under the curse, man cannot by this law obtain saving grace. So it's saying we cannot be saved by the law. So how then are we saved? By the Gospel. And that's Article 6. What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law could do, that God performs by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the word or ministry of reconciliation, which is the glad tidings, that is the good news of the Gospel concerning the Messiah. So a part of our Reformed confessions is that they teach what we call a law-gospel distinction. And for our Reformed confessions to do that is for them to be drawing directly from Scripture. For that same distinction is found here in Galatians 3 where there's a consistent contrast between the works of the law and faith. Between the law and the promise. So that we read in Galatians 3, verse 12, for example, and the law is not of faith. Faith being a, a component of the Gospel. See the same thing in Galatians 3, verse 18. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. That is the promise of the Gospel. Now why does any of this matter? Well, partly because so many errors that have arisen in the history of the church are due to a mixing of law and Gospel. Confusion on this point. So much so that a man by the name of Beza, this was Calvin's successor in Geneva, said once, quote, ignorance of this distinction between law and Gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. End quote. Martin Luther once said about confusing law and gospel that this quote does more mischief than man's reason can conceive. End quote. And sadly, such confusion contributed to the recent controversy that was a part of the history of our churches in the years gone by. 
part of the difficulty that our churches face was confusion on this matter so that statements were made. One in particular that blurred the distinction between these two and that only added to the difficulties that our churches went through. And that underscores the importance, the significance of this topic. And that's where this sermon comes in. The purpose of this sermon in explaining question and answers 18 and 19 is to provide clarity concerning this distinction. God's Word calls us to stand fast in the truth. And if we're going to stand fast for the truth of God's Word, it means we need a clear understanding of what it teaches. And so, this sermon is intended to help us grow in our understanding of this aspect of Reformed theology. There's more to the purpose of the sermon. Because though a right understanding of this theology is important, we're not interested in doctrine for the sake of doctrine. This must never be a cold, abstract truth that we have to get right simply for the sake of getting it right. But instead, this is the Gospel we're talking about. This is our salvation. And thus, the the ultimate purpose of this sermon is to rekindle within our hearts a joy and a gladness for the good news, for the glad tidings of salvation in Jesus Christ so that we might be stirred up in our zeal for this holy Gospel. And so that in mind that we consider Lord's Day 6, really question and answers 18 and 19, using as our theme the Holy Gospel, because that's the focus. First, we're going to look at the message of the Gospel. Second, we'll look at the revelation of that Gospel. And then third and finally, we'll look at the calling or call of the Gospel. The first point, we want to focus on the message of the Gospel. And in order to understand the message of the Gospel, one of the best ways to do that is by comparing it and really contrasting it with the message of the law. So we'll look at the law and then the Gospel and look at the message of each and then we'll see some other distinctions on top of that. Let's look at the law first of all. Now when we speak of the law this morning, we are using that word in the narrow sense of its meaning. That is, by law, we're not talking... We're not using that as a synonym for the first five books of the Bible, that is the Pentateuch. Nor are we using the law as a synonym for the whole of the Old Testament Scripture. But instead, we're using the word law in the narrow sense of referring to that which a man must do in order to live before the face of God. Because that's the fundamental message of the law. The law says, do this and live. The law says, do this. That is, it sets forth some requirement. And the requirement is God's commandments, His precepts as they're found all throughout Scripture. And God requires of us perfect, perpetual obedience. That is, we have to measure up perfectly and completely. And not just from an external point of view, keeping the law in an outward way, but from an internal view, point of view within our hearts. That's the requirement. The law says, do this. But then it adds, 
and live. That is, the law promises life to anyone who can keep the law perfectly. You may you will have life everlasting with God if you keep these commandments. So there's a promise of life, but there's also a corresponding threat of death. So that the law, when saying do this and live, is also saying if you fail to do this, you will die. The law says what it does in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. There it's saying, if you fail in any respect, you will become the object of God's wrath. That's the negative, and I should have a moment ago given the corresponding positive when I was explaining the, the do this and live part. That's We're drawing that from Leviticus 18, verse 5, for example. Ye shall therefore keep My statutes and My judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. So when we speak of the law, we're looking at God's commandments. The requirement that's set before us with a view to either avoiding a curse, some punishment, or obtaining some blessing from God. So that when we speak of law, we're talking about obedience as the means of obtaining righteousness. That's the law. And the message of the law. Now, in contrast to that, we want to look at the message of the Gospel. And you know, again, when we speak of Gospel, we're using that too in the narrow sense of the word. We're not using the term Gospel as a synonym for the Gospel accounts that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nor are we using the term Gospel as a synonym for the New Testament or even for the whole of God's Word. But the Gospel is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the fundamental message of the Gospel is Christ has accomplished salvation. It is finished. That's the message that we have here in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's the message of 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save the chief of sinners. The Gospel says it is finished. Christ has accomplished salvation. So that the heart and center of the, the message of the Gospel is Christ Himself and His saving work. The message of the Gospel is that He paid the debt that we owe for our sins. That He satisfied God's justice by His death on the cross. The message of the Gospel is that He lived a life of perfect, perpetual obedience and He did so on our behalf. That that obedience is now imputed to us and is the basis for our own righteousness. Christ kept the law perfectly. And He He paid the penalties that we owe for our disobedience. And now the law, excuse me, the gospel promises to us life on the basis of His saving work. Life for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Life without having to earn it. Life without having to keep any sort of condition in order to obtain it. But 
life on the basis of Christ's work. So that the message of the Gospel is that righteousness is that life is given to us on the basis of Christ's own righteousness. So that we see that there's a clear distinction between the two. The law requires people to earn eternal life by their works. The Gospel gives eternal life on the basis of Christ's work. The law says to us, Thou art a sinner and thou shalt be condemned. The Gospel says to us, but Jesus came into the world to save such sinners. The law says, pay what thou owest or I'll throw you into prison. The gospel, but the Gospel says, but Christ gave Himself as a ransom. He paid the debt so that I might have redemption. Two fundamentally different messages. And that's the main distinction we see between law and Gospel is the, the message that each communicates. Now, there are other distinctions that we want to add on top of that so that first we've looked at the message, second we can look at what we call the the nature of each or the office of each or the purpose of each. The law and Gospel are different in that respect too in that the office of the law primarily is to show us our sins. That's Romans 3, verse 20, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That was the teaching of the catechism back in question 3. Whence knowest thou thy misery and understood is thy sin and misery? Well, that's out of the law of God. The law teaches us our sin and misery. So that it's the law that teaches us about our spiritual sickness. It's the law that reveals the condemnation and death that we deserve so that the word of the law is really a word of wrath. But in contrast to that, the the function, the office, the nature of the Gospel is that it sets forth, it shows to us the Savior from sin. The law shows us sin itself. The Gospel shows us the Savior from sin. It declares this as it does in John 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And that's the whole point of question and answer 19, whence knowest thou this? That is, whence knowest thou our Savior Jesus Christ? Out of or from the Holy Gospel. It's the Gospel that teaches us the remedy for our spiritual sickness. It's the Gospel that reveals to us the the redemption in life that we need to deliver us from condemnation and death. It's the Gospel that is a word of peace as opposed to a word of wrath. So what each of them shows us is different. But now we can add a a third distinction. They differ in their message. They differ in their function or their nature or office. And now thirdly, there's a distinction between law and Gospel in that the law is weak whereas the Gospel is a power. The law is weak. And we say that in light of Romans 8, verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. This verse speaks of a certain weakness of the law. And that's not an inherent 
weakness. There's not something deficient about the law itself, but it's weak on account of our sinful flesh. And the point is, the law cannot save us. We cannot be justified by the law. And that's the consistent message of Galatians chapter 3. For example, in Galatians 3, verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3, verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, and implied is that it wasn't given for that purpose, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So the law is weak. And a part of that weakness is that the law does not confer grace. That is, the law makes commands, but then it doesn't help us meet those commands. It doesn't give what it commands. And therefore, the law cannot save. That's the weakness of the law. And in contrast, Scripture emphasizes the power, the strength of the Gospel. It does so in Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And the Gospel is powerful exactly because it does confer grace. The Gospel gives what it commands. And that it's by the Gospel that the Spirit works faith within our hearts. The Gospel says, believe in Jesus Christ. And then the Gospel has the power to work that faith within us. So that the overall point is that there is a clear distinction between law on the one hand and Gospel on the other. But now why does any of this matter at all? So what? Well, on the one hand, as we alluded to in the first point, we need a clear understanding of this law-gospel distinction for the sake of avoiding error. Because throughout church history, so many of the most prevalent errors have been the result of confusion on this point, of a blending, a mixing of law and gospel, specifically in the area of what is it that makes us right with God. This was the error that Paul was facing with the Judaizers when he wrote the book of Galatians. When he says in Galatians 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He's referring to the, the Judaizers who among which who were teaching among the different errors that they held to that it's our obedience to the law that is a part of what makes us right with God. They were saying you have to to keep God's commandments and that, that contributes to your righteousness so that the fundamental error is a, a mixing, a blending of law and Gospel when it comes to how we are justified. This is the error of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we are justified because of a progressive moral transformation. That is, we become righteous, according to them, as we grow in our sanctification. And the only reason we need grace is to help us keep the law so that by our law-keeping we might be made righteous. 
We see the same thing with Arminianism. Arminianism blends, it mixes law and Gospel. It does so in a slightly different way. And that Arminianism teaches that while in the Old Testament, God required perfect perpetual obedience. But now in the New Testament, He's dropped that requirement. And now He requires faith as the replacement of that obedience He previously required so that salvation now comes to depend on my faith so that they're taking an element of the Gospel and they're making it a new law. A mixing of law and Gospel. This is the era of the federal vision. The federal vision collapses law and Gospel and they say explicitly that the law is Gospel and that the Gospel is law. And that my works of obedience are required in addition to Christ's obedience. If I'm going to be right with God so that according to them, the law is a part of the good news of the Gospel. But over against all of those errors, Scripture makes very clear we have to keep these two distinct. And now that does not mean that we throw out the law. That's not the message of this sermon or of this Lord's Day. Because Scripture clearly teaches us the law is good. The law is holy. It's righteous. Even for those of us who live after the fall, we need the law because it's, it's the law of God. It's, it's useful. It's necessary. It's useful in that it shows us our sins. It's useful in that it sets before us a, what a life of thankful living looks like. So the point is not that, that we need to get rid of the law, that the law is somehow evil, but the point is that when it comes to addressing and answering the question, how can I be right with God? When we come to the whole matter of our justification, we must keep law and Gospel distinct. And that it's not the works of the law that make me right with God. It's not my obedience that gets me out of some punishment or that gets me God's favor, but it's the Gospel. It's the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point being made in a passage such as Romans 3, verses 27 and 28. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It's the message of Galatians chapter. 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And if we're ever going to hold on to that truth, we must maintain this clear distinction between law and Gospel. So that on the one hand is the practical significance of what we're talking about. But on the other hand, we need to know this distinction if we are ever going to live and die happily. Because this is our comfort. That we belong to Jesus Christ. That's a part of the Gospel. 
And that's such a comfort because consider where we would be without this good news. Because as the Heidelberg Catechism has taught us, we are sinners. And on account of our sin, we deserve death. We deserve the God's curse to come upon us. We deserve both temporal and eternal punishment for our sin. And what is worse, we have no way of satisfying God's justice. We have no way to to make a payment whereby we could get out of that punishment and be received again in God's favor. And even worse than that, there's no other creature who can do it for us. That was what the previous Lord's Day taught us. Lord's Day 5, Lord's Day 5, in Lord's Day 5, it was though we took a tour. We were surveying all the different options that are available to us. Who might be able to... Who, who might be able to deliver us? And every time that we got our hopes up, maybe thinking, well, here's deliverance. The catechism showed us, no. There's not deliverance in yourself. There's not deliverance in some other mere creature. There's not deliverance in some other mere man. So that it's as though the catechism, by the time we get to the end of Lord's Day 5, it's as though it wants us to conclude then there is no salvation. It's impossible. There's no way to be delivered and be received again into God's favor. And thus, it's exactly at that point that the catechism finally gets around to setting before us Jesus Christ and telling us of the good news of salvation in Him. The Catechism teaches us now that there is a Deliverer. There is one who is qualified in that He is very God and very man and perfectly righteous all at once. And that He, as the one who is qualified, has made satisfaction. He's redeemed us from the, the curse of the law. And on the basis of that work, we who were the enemies of God, who stood exposed to His wrath, have been reconciled to God, made the the object of His favor so that we can enjoy Him as our covenantal friend. And it's in light of the contrast between what the law taught us and what the Gospel now teaches us that the catechism is basically urging us to cry out, Hallelujah! There is deliverance! And we need to see that. And we will rejoice in that good news when we see this contrast. And when we see that what makes the good news so wonderful is that none of my law-keeping is a part of what makes me right with God. But the good news of the Gospel is that there is a full and a complete salvation in Jesus Christ. The message is not you have to fulfill some conditions before God will receive you into favor. The message is not that you have to improve yourself spiritually before God's going to accept you. The message is not Jesus will get you so far, but then you must get the last little bit of the way 
But the message is that Jesus Christ is a full and complete Savior. That's the message of question and answer 18. When it tells us that our Lord and Jesus Christ was made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is all of those things for us. He's a a full and complete Savior. And it's when we know this that we can then live and die happily. This is our comfort in life and death. And this has been God's Word to His church ever since the fall of Adam into sin. That is the message that's been revealed all throughout history. And we want to look at that revelation of the Gospel now in the second point. And it's the revelation of the Gospel that's really the focus of question and answer 19. Whence knowest thou this from the Holy Gospel, which God Himself first revealed in paradise, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly has fulfilled, and lastly has fulfilled it by His only begotten Son. I'm going to take the time to look at the language of this answer, but before we get to the specifics, note two general truths that come out from answer 19. On the one hand, in distinction from the law, the Gospel is something that's divinely revealed. Answer 19 says, which God Himself first revealed. And we say that's in contrast to the law because the law is something we know in part by nature or naturally. And we say that in light of Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. There we read, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. This verse speaks of the Gentiles, and it's referring to those who have no knowledge of the sacred Scriptures. But yet, even though that's true, they don't know Scripture, they still have the works of the law written in their heart. How so? Well, because of how God created man. God built into man an understanding of right and wrong. He gave to man a conscience. That is, the works of the law are written on man's heart. So that the point is, the law is something we know in part naturally or by nature. In contrast, the Gospel is something that's known only by revelation. This is another part of the law-gospel distinction. How we know then the Gospel is something God makes known to us. Apart from His work of revealing to it, we would never know about the, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. So that on one hand is one general truth that comes out from answer 19. The other is that answer 19 also makes clear that the Gospel was indeed revealed already in the Old Testament. And that's important to note because one of the many misunderstandings concerning law and Gospel is the misunderstanding that, well, 
the Old Testament, that's law, and the New Testament, that's gospel. So that the misunderstanding is equating, equating Old Testament with law and New Testament with gospel. And that's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's a prevalent misunderstanding of this law-gospel distinction, supposing that we just have to line it up with the appropriate testament. And that is a part of the explanation for how the Roman Catholic Church gets its doctrine of justification. Because if you say the New Testament is gospel, and entirely gospel, well now all of the commandments in the New Testament, all of the warnings, all of the threatenings that are a part of the New Testament are now a part of the Gospel and I must keep them in order to be right with God. So this misunderstanding of saying Old Testament is law, New Testament is Gospel must be avoided for the sake of avoiding the the greater danger of mixing the two when it comes to how I can be right with God. Because the reality is that The Old Testament, while it contains law, certainly also contains Gospel. And that's proved even here in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 8, for example, says in the Scripture, well, back up to verse 6, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the Gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. The New Testament itself is saying the Gospel was preached to Abraham. And even if it did not state that explicitly, the very fact that verses 6 and 7 are telling us Abraham was justified by faith. He was saved in the exact same way that we are saved is telling us that the Gospel was revealed already in the Old Testament. And we'll see that more as we come to look at the specifics of answer 19. So the Gospel is in the Old Testament. And likewise, you can find law in the New Testament. To use one example, think of the preaching of Jesus Christ. Think of His sermon on the mount as He gives instruction concerning the Sixth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment. Think of His sermon against the the Pharisees in which He pronounced woe upon woe upon woe. Those are warnings to them. He's telling them of the judgment. That's the message of the law. So that the point is, when it comes to trying to understand what's law and what's Gospel, it's not as simple as saying, well, Old Testament is law and New Testament is Gospel. But it, it depends on the character, the nature of the passage. So if we, under, if we want to be able to discern the voice of the law, then we need to recognize that any passage, Old or New Testament, that sets before us some requirement, some demand of obedience, and says do this in order to avoid a punishment and, or in order to obtain a blessing, that's the voice of the law. Or to put it differently, if there's a promise, but appended to the promises, some condition that man must fulfill, an if-then statement, do this and live, that too is the voice of the law. Whether you hear that in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. 
On the flip side, if we want to discern the voice of the Gospel, that's all those passages that give us some promise. Without any sort of condition, we must fulfill. That points us to the saving work of Jesus Christ and says, because He did it. Because He took your punishment. Because He fulfilled the law. Therefore, you have life. That's the voice of the Gospel. And that's what's been revealed all throughout God's Word. There's been a progressive revelation. And that's what comes out when we finally look at the specifics in answer 19. Answer 19 uses four different verbs and speaks of four different aspects of this revelation. It begins by saying, from the Holy Gospel which God first revealed in paradise. So first we have the revelation in Paradise. And here are the references, obviously, to that Word of God in Genesis 3, verse 15, that God spoke to the serpent and thus to Satan when He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That was a, a revelation of the Gospel. That word is about our Savior Jesus Christ. It's the mother promise and that every other promise flows out of that promise. To be sure, the details are blurry. It's going to get clearer as you go through the Old Testament, but the substance is there. Because the heart of it is that God Himself is going to put Enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which implies God Himself is going to reconcile the seed of the woman to Himself. And He's going to do this through a single individual. Someone who's a male because seed is singular and it speaks of His heel. And what is more, there's even hints of the fact that this One who is to come, this Deliverer, this Savior is going to be both man and God. He has to be man because He's the seed of the woman, a descendant of Eve, but yet, He's got to be something more than man because He must be mightier, stronger than Satan to break the power of the devil. So that all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, you have the good news of the Gospel. So it was first revealed in paradise. But then secondly, the catechism tells us that it was published by the patriarchs and the prophets. Published by the patriarchs. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made known to them the Gospel. And they then passed it on to others. While I have examples in front of me, I think I'm going to pass over them for the sake of making sure we have time to keep moving. So he published it to the patriarchs. He published it to the the prophets. speaks of them next. And that includes the Old Testament prophets, their writings. Think of Isaiah 53 and the the prophecy of the suffering servant. It's not limited to that. It's not even limited to the books of the Bible that we call the, the prophets. Because included under prophets would be that great prophet David. And all the psalms that he wrote. The psalms that we have been singing in this worship service that were prophecies, revelations of the good news of the Gospel of salvation in 
Jesus Christ. So first, it was revealed in paradise. Second, published by the patriarchs and prophets. Third, the catechism tells us next that it was represented or pictured by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Speaks of the sacrifices. This is arguably one of the clearest pictures of the saving work of Christ in that you have bloodshed. You have the giving of a life for the sake of atoning for sin. Catechism speaks of other ceremonies. Think of the various feast days. Each one of them points to a unique aspect of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And what's so notable here is that these sacrifices and these other ceremonies were a part of what we call the ceremonial law. Notice that for a second. The good news of the Gospel is found in those passages that we call the ceremonial law. Again, emphasizing whether a passage is law or Gospel does not depend on where exactly it's found in the Bible, but the character of the passage. Because Christ is revealed even in those Old Testament ceremonial laws. So He was revealed first in paradise. He was published by the patriarchs and prophets. He was represented in the sacrifices and other ceremonies. Now fourth and finally, the catechism tells us, and lastly, He has fulfilled it by His only begotten Son. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every Old Testament type, shadow, prophecy, and promise. They all point to Him. And He Himself said as much. Jesus, when He was speaking to the Pharisees, said in John 5, verse 46, for example, for, ye, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed Me, for He, Moses, wrote of Me. What Moses is writing is about Jesus Christ. Same thing in when Jesus is talking to the travelers on the road to Emmaus. We read, "...and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. The whole of the Old Testament points to Christ. He's the, the fulfillment of it all. Underscoring the point we made at the beginning of the first point, that the message of the Gospel is fundamentally Christ. And the salvation that's found in Him, that's the heart and center. And because that's true, the call of the Gospel is to believe in Jesus Christ. We end by looking briefly at the calling or call of the Gospel. And it's worth stating explicitly that the call to believe is indeed a part of the Gospel. And we say that because there are some who object at that point. There are some who would say, well, the command to repent and to believe, well, it's a command. It's put in the imperative. And it's a, if it's put in the imperative, that must mean it belongs to the law because the law is the thing that's always telling us, do this and live. And that's been the teaching of some within the Reformed tradition. But over against that, I believe 
the truth of the matter is that the call to believe belongs to the Gospel. Now, there is some truth to the fact that generally speaking, the law is filled with all the commands of do this, don't do that, so that the imperatives generally belong to the law. And we can also say from a general point of view that the indicatives and the promises generally belong to the Gospel. But here's the main exception. The call to believe in Jesus Christ. That is put in the imperative, but it's a part of what we call the Gospel. And that's not just my point of view. It's the viewpoint of many others. For example, it's the viewpoint of Ursinus in his commentary on the Catechism. He's one of the authors. He addresses this exact thinking that if the call to believe is put in the imperative, therefore it must belong to the Gospel. And he, he rejects that view, making clear he believes it's a part of the Gospel. This is the view of Bavink, Herman Bavink. He says, quote, faith and repentance themselves nevertheless are components of the Gospel, not the workings or fruits of the law. Now, what your pastor says or what these other men in the Reformed tradition says is not so important, but what is important is what do our confessions tell us? I believe the Kansas Dort Head 2, Article 5 is helpful in this respect. Head 2, Article 5 reads, Moreover, the promise of the Gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations, and to all persons, promiscuously and without distinction, to whom God, out of His good pleasure, sends the Gospel. It's putting the command to repent and believe with the Gospel. And that's why we even call it the call of the Gospel. That is, that the Gospel is what's issuing the call. The, the call belongs to the Gospel. And now when we say that, we do need to be very careful We need to avoid so emphasizing this point that we turn believing or repenting into a new law. Because that too has been done in church history. And perhaps at this point in our church history, we're more prone to that than ever. And that there are errors concerning faith and repentance that are being taught by those who've left our denomination. And the danger for us is to overreact and to so emphasize the activity of believing or the necessity of repenting, that we start to turn them into something that they're not so that we begin to view them as that which makes me right with God. Must avoid that. But now with that qualification in place, we need to hear the call. Believe. Because the good news is that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And the call, therefore, is to look to Him. Renounce our own works. Renounce anything and everything that we would otherwise hold up as that which is a reason for God to look upon us favorably. 
And instead, embrace Christ. Embrace His righteousness as the only ground of our salvation. That's the call of the Gospel. For whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. May God use this Word this morning, this proclamation of the Gospel to work faith in those hearts where it's absent and to strengthen faith in those hearts where it's present. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for the good news that we have heard. Apply it unto our hearts and be pleased to use this Word either to work or to strengthen our faith as is needed. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.